Hello and welcome to another episode of the Tech Marketing Podcast. News in. The Busby family has had a beautiful baby, but unfortunately that means that he's not going to be with us this week and in the next coming episodes, I imagine he'll be even more slow than usual. So this week we're going to do a supercut of clips from previous episodes based around brand awareness, a hot topic for us right now, and we're going to leave links to those podcasts in the description of this one. Until then, we're going to leave you with the content. We send our love to the Busbys and we will see you in two weeks time. It's a quote from from your recent report, which actually talks about the, the brand value makes up 25% of a company's intangible assets, which in turn contribute 84% of market value. So it shows the long-term value brand has. And I, I thought it'd be an interesting discussion to start with is to look at why we feel marketeers are um, focusing more on the short-term impact. It's a challenge, I think, across all sectors, actually. I don't think it's a unique to, to any particular sector. From my personal perspective, having interacted and spoken to CMOs and senior marketeers, um, I think it's just uh, pressure. I think it's bottom line pressure. I think it's pressure on, on profit. And while there seems to be a sentiment that senior marketeers do understand the value and investment uh, of long-term brand support. It's just not translating through. And I think that, for me, that is driven by, as I said, a desire and a need and the pressures probably from the CEO camp um, to deliver the short-term numbers. I think historically, we also tend to see in times of economic um, unrest and certainly, certainly times of recession, um, this this seems to sharpen. So you see a, a real, historically, we have seen a real move for budgets that were maybe sat against brand suddenly being very compressed and that budget being moved towards um, demand gen, lead gen, sales driven um, marketing activities. And again, if you look at, it'd be interesting to, to, to map this out maybe, it's then hard, it seems, to pull that money back. Mm-hmm. So once it's gone, um, it, it's then very hard to, to, to put that back into or build that case, even though a lot of the uh, research does point to long-term brand investment being incredibly successful and having an impact on a brand's overall profitability. And I also guess one of the you know benefits that online and you know digital marketing techniques have given marketeers and businesses over the last probably you know 10 10 to 15 years which is you know the ability to track every single action and in real time or you know to to probably a, a greater level of precision compared to traditional you know research has had a negative impact in terms of like giving marketeers agencies and and probably publishers a bit of an easier way to uh, justify certain level of of investments on more short-term tactics rather than keep fighting a battle for long it is in the moment and and and, you know the, the the other aspect of that is how marketeers and businesses judge the effectiveness of marketing which as a model has not really adapted in the light of all the innovation that you know we've seen in the last yeah, few years. And I think the challenges we we see our, our clients facing is um, just like you're saying, Laura, about budgets um, from the last recession. Budgets sort of being marketing budgets are obviously the first budgets to be under pressure. Um, so therefore, you're looking at where can you show impact, and also tenure. And and there's quite a lot of discussion around the tenure of senior roles and senior marketeers. And and the the other piece I think you were mentioning there as well was was um, from the board. It's the stakeholder and your investor. 
pressure to to show the impact you're having and i think it's probably the the multiplier effect of all of those is therefore why where we tend to and our clients tend to be challenged with actually it's about the results for the end of that quarter or the end of that month and then optimizing against those from a marketing point of view it's the intangibility of being able to measure the brand and that brand value it's it's a combination of those factors so i think if you look at the so tenure is one thing i mean imagine any position where you go into and sort of the you know the the, the backdrop to that is well you're lucky if you're here in two years time that's that's quite a pressured environment to be the second piece is, as I said, you're sort of, you're, you know, you're being tested on quarterly results more than you ever have done before. Um, and, you know, that in itself. So I think, and actually picking back up on your point, Michaela, which I think is incredibly important, we were sort of sold, we were all sold the dream of digital marketing and advertising. Um, and, you know, there's, there are aspects of it that have been phenomenal and have transformed the landscape. There's no question. But I think it has taken us down a path and I think there is, there does appear and seem to be a sort of a sort of a slow paging back from that, because exactly to your point, Claire. Suddenly, everyone went, "Great, we can be really accountable for absolutely every every single piece of marketing. This is what we must do. We can track every single um, click, every single impression." And that has actually, I think, over time had a detrimental effect to investment in long-term brand. Um, because I said there was a sort of paging back of we can report on absolutely everything. The value of the, of the reporting actually probably has to be questioned to some degree. Um, but what was abandoned was maybe those long-term brand studies, which are expensive. You know, if you're investing in brand, you tend to then invest in a long-term brand study. One other dimension linked to that is that, you know, even if I think from a media planning standpoint, from a technical skills perspective, you know, we tend to look more now for talents that are, you know, with data, with statistics, with numbers, whereas, you know, the probably more traditional skill set that you require to develop um, longer brand strategy campaigns from an agency standpoint, I think is also reflected on the client side where, you know, there is a tendency obviously to to be, you know, super data driven, technology driven with kind of a bit of a false um, illusion that you can use data as a way to get around, you know, due diligence around strategy and planning and, you know, and creativity, the role of creative storytelling, you know, and I think the other dimension of the um, IPA study that you referenced, Claire, is one of the things that they said when they presented the data was that um, in some way there is also evidence that this obsession about, you know, precision and hyper-targeting and, you know, using creative just for, let's say, a very limited number of people is actually has in the long term a, a negative impact because you're ignoring the wider, um, you know, all of the stakeholders around that have to influence in some way that decision on uh, on a brand or technology or, or, or a service internally to the business, but also externally. Might be worth just, just going back to the element around creativity. And, you know, this almost like nowadays, this disposable creativity and what value the creative has. That There's a recent report also brought out by the IPA around creative effectiveness and how that's linked to the short-termism. And actually, uh, um, a lot of the creative that's winning awards is now being seen to be less effective from driving value. There's two views of this. And, I, you know, there's a personal view. And I sort of tend to, you know, I'll sort of give that. And then I think it's also from maybe through the more of the lens of the Financial Times. From a personal point of view and sort of 20 plus years, I do think creativity has taken a bit of a hammering. I think sort of, you know, two decades ago, it was almost, you know, sort of launching a brand or it was a big glossy TV campaign. And, you know, you saw some amazing creativity, um, but it was also incredibly expensive. 
And so, again, it comes back to the launch of or the fragmented landscape, the digital mm-hmm. landscape, the growth of that, and people sort of saying, you know, to my previous point, fantastic, we have Nirvana now, we can measure everything, we can data can drive the creative output, it can drive the metrics, we've, we've found everything. And I think what's been lost in all of those data points is probably true creativity, which is why I think the IPA um, effectiveness report has probably landed where it's landed. It's not to say there's great advertising out there and great creativity, but I think it's become smaller and smaller. And I think that's there's a, there's a number of factors at play. I also think that's pressures to the previous points mm-hmm. that we made, pressures and budgets. Um, but I, I do think we have gone down a path of data driving everything and while none of us sat around this table would um, would diminish the role <laughs> that data can play and the effectiveness of that absolutely is vital, there is still a huge role for creative thinking um, to look at something differently, to even analyse data differently. So I think the two can sit comfortably together, but I think we have lost a little bit of the ability to be really brave. So brand building is a long-term play right and you're not down when people know you you need to keep fighting for that position you know as the market keep changing so that's important of keeping tracking it over time and just taking action and build that presence continuously you know a month-long campaign it will certainly help you to generate an uplift but it's not going to consolidate your position within the market at that takes time so um, as the market continuously change, you need to be there all the time to build that presence and um, and be front of mind of your audience. So if you're not there, someone else will be, and you don't want that to happen. Basically, I think I think there's this great. Um, I forgot we we had a we recorded a podcast around the effects of network memory, um, and one thing that that strikes me in in my mind, especially when we talk about brand awareness. Um, and I've forgotten the the exact term here, but there's a essentially there's a scientific body. You know what it's like when you someone tells you a fact and you can actually recall it the next day, but then over time that knowledge like drifts off. There's like a there's essentially like a gradient, and it was it, it's well proven that over time, of course, our ability to recall facts and and knowledge uh, drifts off. And I think it's the same with brand, really, isn't it? Like you have to, but you have to do this at a network scale. You have to constantly keep topping up the the audience with with messaging about your brand to remind them that you're still there otherwise that that memory will just start to fade it's you know it, would, would you agree yeah yeah no that that's it totally and um yeah that's happened to b2c but also <laughs> b2b it's it, I, it, I think that plus the network element is is, is really key like yeah. you you can't mm. you know this isn't about reminding individual people about the brand though that's really what we are doing at the end of the day it's about reminding the you know the whole audience about it and keep and, and topping that up uh quite regularly but it's you know we have to remember i believe it's called the memory gradient um you know that that, that does fade does fade over time um so I mean, that's been a fantastic set of uh, of tips there that we've been going through. Like one thing I've been hearing, you know, you've got to make sure you establish your benchmark. Um, you've got to make sure you're always on to to keep topping up that brand knowledge. And probably the most important element here I'm, I'm hearing is, is you've got to keep testing and learning. Like you can't rest on your laurels um, and expect the campaign to keep performing. You've got to you've got to measure and tweak um, to get the most out of the out of the budget. I mean, what would you? What advice for yeah you know, for me as a as an ex software developer, like talking <laughs> about agile and and tweaking things live, like just feels like a no brainer. But what advice would you give to other other marketeers to to establish that test and that approach? 
I would say um, to be very structured in your approach. Um, so, and to explain that is like select two variables at a time. For example, you have X creative messages across different targeting strands and decide what's the length of time you're going to be in market for this test before evaluating results. And really, my from my experience, and less is more, and it will give you more solid and actionable results than wanting to test a lot of things. Uh, I've seen that happening many times. And you test a lot of things, and then at the end of it, you don't know what's the results, and then you start back from scratch. So yep. really, structure is everything. Less is more. Two variables at a time, specific length of time, and... You go, you've got your timeline and then you, you know, at the end of that, you, you know, you take the learning and you implement back. I, I think I, I absolutely love that advice, Steffi. I cannot tell you, and it apply. I would say to all of our listeners that applies to more than just media optimization. Like, I agree. like the amount of campaigns that I've worked with, the amount of marketing activity, if that doesn't even matter campaigns, like products, um, anything where we've got to yeah, relationships, yeah. we've got two weeks in and then we've decided to change our goalposts and not even measure where we were or like, or, or the, or the cardinal sin, which is try and measure about 10 different things, um, and not really know what you're optimizing for. So like, I absolutely love that advice. I, I absolutely, I think that's brilliant. One question we always come across in B2B is how much to give away? Like, you know, that, that content is valuable. And quite often, you know, I can, I'll put my hand up now. I've, I've taken content that people have put online and, and, uh, remixed it for my own, for my own purpose. Not, you know, that's, that's the joy of, it's one of the joys of creativity, but how do you. Re- and there's been times when we've been making this podcast and thought, Oh, do you want to keep that to ourselves? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Harry, like, where do you draw that line? Like, how do you decide like how much to give away and how much to, to keep back? Because I think that's, that is the fundamental question that I come across again and again with B2B brands. Actually, there's a very interesting model here. My, my first response, because it is a, 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 um, a, an interesting question. My first response is just give it all away. Mm. Um, you know, there's no better way of building trust than just saying, we believe passionately in our product and everything we've got to say. So we'll just give you this because we trust you to respond to us. And you, one of the ways you build trust is by trusting back i love that but if you look at um for example um the rock and roll business which uh had a cataclysmic um event when things like spotify and um what the whatever the i can't remember it now deezer the various free and 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 streaming platforms came in youtube music now amazon what the the big copyright holders struggled with the the big labels and publishers was how do we get revenue from our from our stuff how are we going to do this and the the advice that began to emerge from the experience was well just go with it live with it publish your stuff as cheap as it gets on spotify and youtube and all those platforms because then the people that really want it will go out and pay for it They'll listen to it, they'll stream it, and then they'll say, no, I want the experience of owning something beautiful or a much better quality listen or whatever. And hence, you've got a surge in the revival of vinyl. I don't know if that's going to be sustainable. It's gone on quite a long time. We couldn't get a podcast in without without you mentioning vinyl. There, Every Stuart, podcast. <laughs> no, but I'm, I mean, I'm not a vinyl fan. I'm, I'm not into vinyl at all. But the point is, 
that model of saying, look, the market doesn't value your content. That's the first thing. And we've got data from IDG that talks about only 41% of downloaded content published by B2B uh, brands is seen as valuable. And I always come back, I think I've said this on a previous podcast, I love that 41% of downloaded content because most content isn't downloaded. 80, 90% of content that's published, nobody downloads it. You know, 20% is a great rate. And of that 20%, only less than half people think is any good. And there's, and there's your model. So you might as well give it away. <laughs> but let people start engaging with you and start trusting your ability to tell them things that are useful. Sorry, I'll stop again now. Yeah, cheers, man. I love, uh, I love what you're saying there, Stuart. And uh, a couple of things came to me. The first is, have you heard there's a 1938 Abbott and Costello who's on first base? It's a comedy sketch. Um, so there's, there's basically different baseball players and then their names are, their names are like who uh, is, is one of the people. And they say, who's on first base? And they say, yeah, I'm asking you who's on first base. And he says, that's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. You know, that, that sketch. <laughs> Uh, it's, it was very famous and influential in comedy. And the point is, I can't steal that joke. And it's kind of a very similar thing. If we think of something that is the equivalent of hilarious, do we want to even tell that joke to our friends? Because we need to wait until we're on stage or whatever for that. I'm saying if we are the type of brand publishers that are fully honest, like you say, Stuart, then you, your success and your reach will be uh will be benefited so much that you eventually will become way less easy to copy because the people because the people who intend to copy you will have a worry in their minds that other people have already seen what you've put out i think i think i think that's one of the most important points here right like and i'm i'm going to ask a fairly dull marketing question right is becoming a brand publisher a demand gen tactic because a lot of people would put content out for demand gen, right? We want to gate this PDF and we want to gate this and we'll come back to formats in a second. That's a whole other kettle of fish um, to talk about because we haven't even, you know, Stuart, you mentioned downloading things. We need That needs another discussion. But like, is it a demand gen tactic or is it an awareness tactic? I, I'm I'm starting to go, it's, it's the latter, right? It's changing your mindset that this content isn't about generating leads, it is further down the funnel, but actually, if you give it all away for free, which I completely agree, I think you should you should be much more open. It will build a much higher trust with the audience. Coming back to the points, Alex, you were making with you know with cookies going away, and they will be much more likely to come back and share the de- details with you later. How many people um, when they're ready? How many people are at the buying stage in their journey at any given point in time? It's hardly anyone at all. I've seen two different stats of this recently. Um, it, it's either 5% or 4%. So it's a very small fraction. So you need to be something that people are going to regularly when they're not in their buying journey so that when they are at that part of the journey, you're right there. Certainly from my perspective on the advertising side, like it's bigger than that now. It's it's a tactic that needs to happen across the board. Um, as the targetable internet, if you like, goes away, we need to know who our customers are at all elements of their interaction with your brand, whether it's the first time they come and 
visit your website, whether it's the tenth time they come and visit your website, whether it's you know they're on loads of webinars or they've already downloaded assets. We need to understand that journey. And the way to do that is to build something that allows them to keep coming back. You know, you're not going to get everybody's details straight from the first visit. Building that relationship, giving them quality content to then the point where they go, oh, I, I want to submit my data to you guys. I'm, I'm going to say something fairly controversial here. Like, is are the terms that we use to describe this kind of activity, right? Um, you demand gen awareness, all this. You know, I think, uh, are we reaching the end of the usable life for those terms? I never got to the beginning of the usefulness of those terms. <laughs> They're useful uh, in a, tact- a tactical level, but I think the distinction is, is can be confusing and can blur your thinking. Um, because, of course, there's no such thing as awareness. For, you know, what's the point of awareness? I don't care if, if anyone's aware of me, if nobody buys me. The only reason I want you to be aware of me is because I want you to buy something off me. They're, you know, and it, I've never heard anybody make a good case for awareness for its own sake. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Tech Marketing Podcast. Like, share and subscribe and we will see you all in two weeks time.